So ultimately, the vision is to ensure democratic and free access to medical data for entities that have an R&D objective in mind. Regardless if it's a big corporation or a researcher affiliated with a well-known university or an individual young scientist who just needs medical data sets for the research. Welcome to the show. Our guest today is Dr. Wojek Sarapi, co-founder and CEO of Data Lake, which is a company based in Poland and is working to build an ethical data access layer by accepting medical data donations from people. This episode was recorded in March of 2023. If you'd like to view and listen to these podcasts sooner, you can subscribe to the Health Unchained Supercast premium membership, which already offers uncut versions of episodes 116 and 117. Your support helps to keep this show running. I appreciate all the visionaries and believers who are supporting our mission. I really enjoyed speaking with Waj and I hope you do as well. Remember, the Health Unchained podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only, and we are not providing any sort of legal, financial, or medical advice. Please do your own research and due diligence before making any important decisions related to these matters. And now, let's get to the show. Hi, I'm your host, Ray Dogan, and welcome to Health Unchained. On this show, I will be speaking with healthcare entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and executives who are using blockchain technologies to revolutionize healthcare. These innovators are building the distributed infrastructure and diverse communities required for a trusted, secure, and decentralized healthcare ecosystem. Enjoy the show. What is blockchain? What is blockchain? What is blockchain? The doctor will see you now. Welcome to the show. Our guest today is Wojciech Sierowski, co-founder and CEO of Data Lake, which is a company based in Poland and is working to build an ethical data access layer by accepting medical data donations from people. Wojciech, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you for inviting me. Awesome. Awesome. I'm really excited that you're here today and I want to get into your company, Data Lake, what you're doing. We met a few... I think last year or something in Deeside, Boston. And I'm just really excited about what you are trying to build here with your company. Why don't we start with your background? Maybe you can share a little bit about yourself to the audience. Sure, absolutely. Thank you for having me. Thank you for asking. I think that's going to be a great episode and our discussion. Physician by training. I graduated from a medical school about four years ago. Prior to that, I was actually a humanitarian organization founder working in sub-Saharan Africa, in Kenya, Uganda, developing a humanitarian organization from a zero to a hundred people. We are supplying both medical equipment and training, working with our Ministry of Foreign Affairs, with a number of NGOs out there on the ground. I started that when I was 19, and I've been doing that for four years, after which I concluded that most of the humanitarian work is actually a cynical instrument of foreign policy of Western powers and should therefore cease to exist, and started my first startup in Nairobi, which was a telemedicine center, and we are supplying telemedicine technologies for remote monitoring of pregnant mothers and babies in Libder in the interior. Been doing that for two years with my current Data Lake co-founders. That's where I first learned about decentralization and blockchain and everything. Because funny enough, in sub-Saharan Africa, people are very advanced with, for instance, mobile payments, but also in using alternative currency systems and value exchange systems in the absence of trust towards the government, towards the society, towards the future, and so on. And I've seen it work and solving real problems for the people out there. And it made me think how it can be applied for solving similar trust problems within healthcare industry. Came back to Poland, practiced as an emergency physician for about two years, also during the COVID pandemics, and started working on Data Lake about three years ago, first as a passion project, because we just wanted to be doing something incredibly interesting as medical doctors, so starting a new donation system in healthcare. But slowly, we actually realized that there is also a tremendous business opportunity to capture. So moved into working on Data Lake full-time, ditched my physician's career about a year and a half ago. And yeah, and right now it's been exciting so far, 15 people on board and moving towards our goals. That's amazing. Great story. And I think the fact that you've had so much experience with international affairs in a way, I think that probably helps drive your knowledge about why it's so hard to collect data, health data from people on a regulatory basis and just being able to securely store that data in different countries is also tricky because you have to comply with different laws, GDPR, et cetera, privacy laws. How has your medical experience actually like influenced some of the work you're doing now? 
quite deeply. And actually, thank you for asking this question. Because if you look at projects and startups in broadly speaking, blockchain in healthcare or crypto in healthcare sphere, most of them are done actually by developers. And after having practiced as a doctor for a couple of years, I know what's reasonable to expect from patients and what's entirely not. And I know what's reasonable to expect from the hospitals and how the culture of medicine works. Because certain things that seem to be logical for an outside observer of healthcare industry, I just know so if you are there on the ground and things work very differently, not because it makes sense, but this is the way it has been done for dozens of years, if not longer, in healthcare. So I think that having that kind of perspective and having always at the back of my head the fact that for any kind of health data exchange or donation system framework to work, it has to be incredibly simple. You actually have to be able to explain it to an average patient who's elderly, who's not so well-versed with digital tools and so on. This is something that is like a principle design the first design principle we always have in mind where we design all the processes and solutions that we have. So I think that this is actually quite important, being aware of what's possible and what's not. Understood. Definitely. I appreciate that answer. And now that you've been doing the entrepreneurial thing for quite some time, have you any sort of learnings or experiences that you think you'd want to share in terms of just being an entrepreneur? Are you happy that you're co-founding this company or would you rather have done something else? That's a great question. And so uh... I'll start with the broader picture and then maybe let's talk about the details. In general, yes. And I think that it's an incredible privilege to be able to work on something that we deeply believe brings value and that if successful, can have a potential of impacting thousands of people's lives. In the same time, everybody is talking that it's hard and it is incredibly hard and it brings a very different level of stress than the one that to which i was used to even being an emergency physician or a humanitarian aid worker there were always waves of stress when you were going on a night shift or to a particular hospital and it were a couple of days or weeks when life was stressful and there was something that we needed to accomplish while building a company is that you have to embrace a certain level of anxiety and stress and uncertainty throughout, which is just gonna be there. So it's a different way of operating to which I actually had to get used to because I thought that I'm capable of handling stress well, given my previous experiences. But this is just a very different level of stress that keeps on being at the back of your head. But overall, very happy. Excellent. How did you first hear about blockchain technology? In Nairobi, which is sometimes called the Silicon Savannah, <laughs> and there were many people working on all sorts of startups, a lot of expats working on things that would commonly be perceived as crazy or, or at least very daring. There is also this presumption linguistically about the way expat community is called in Swahili language in Nairobi. They are called by the word Mzungu, which actually derives from the word Kizungu, which means going in circles, which traces its roots back to the history of explorers, of people who are looking for geographical discoveries in Africa. But it also has this association of being crazy, <laughs> of doing something which to the outside observer is pointless. So there was the spirit of people who were adventurers and who just wanted to cross the frontiers of geography as well, but also science and technology. And it was just a great community to be. So it was quite natural. I was there in 2017, 2018. So it was quite natural for everybody being really open-minded and exploring all the different possibilities of decentralization and crypto there. And that was the first time. Interesting. Yeah, I've heard and I've seen a lot of communities start to flourish in Africa around blockchain and crypto. This is like not just a US thing, obviously, not just a Europe thing. It's a global phenomenon. It's interesting to see or hear that you first heard about it there in Nairobi. Yeah. Why did you start Data Lake? There are two answers to that question. So three years ago, we started it with my co-founder, Lydia, who's also a medical doctor, because it was so incredibly interesting. And it was just a great intellectual adventure and a passion side project that we were developing, thinking about how we can build a new donation system in healthcare. So that was the principal motivation. It was just interesting. And then what made us ditch our medical careers and focus fully on Data Lake is the momentum that we gained. 
generally, one of the lessons I also like to share with other entrepreneurs and startup people is that there is no immediate and linear correlation between the hard work that you put into a company and the effects that you get. It's more like surfing, where you need to catch a wave and then the wave carries you and your job is not to fall off the board. <laughs> so at some point of time, we actually realize that we might be catching a wave which is quite powerful. And what this wave actually is, is a certain things that align together. First one is regulatory momentum that has been there recently for a fundamental change in the way we share our sensitive healthcare information, driven by the pandemics, the, driven by digitization of healthcare repositories, driven by generative AI revolution, which generally all drive the need for having a more robust access to medical data. So first one is the legislative momentum happening both in the US with the Cures Act from October last year, as well in the EU with the Data Governance Act, which is coming up in September this year. So there is this top-down momentum of regulators trying to solve the problem. There is also a bottom-up momentum of people who've been through the pandemic and where lack of good objective data influenced our lives on a daily basis with lockdowns, with vaccines, and with all the other things that came together with the pandemic. So there is also this understanding in the society that we actually have to have some decision-making framework that would prevent from doing the same mistakes that we collectively as society did when the pandemic hit. Then obviously there is technology maturation part where blockchain just wasn't ready and secure and stable enough back then when we were starting in 2019 to handle healthcare data. And right now more and more enterprises and governments are actually moving towards using the blockchain. So from experimental technology that's wouldn't be associated with such serious topic as healthcare, it became something that is more and more palatable to more traditional players. So all these things aligned for us, and we just realized that there is a business opportunity which is ripe for the taking, a new market that is currently being born, which could be established upon principles that are ethical and patient-centric and that put patient in the center of the decision-making process, in the same way, making it easy to understand and easy to subscribe to, which wasn't the case with the blockchain projects in healthcare of data sharing that we saw before. Yes, I guess that it wasn't a decision, to be honest, because with all the facts at the table, we just felt the idea was pulling us towards it. And it wasn't really a decision. It was just us answering to a very objective call, which was out there. Interesting. So you're in the right place at the right time. You were riding that wave and you felt that this is an opportunity you should not let go. So it makes exactly in terms of like the mission, I know that data lake is trying to collect healthcare data donations from people, but overall with that data, what is the broad mission? Like what are you we trying to accomplish here? Yes. Let's look at it from an individual patient's perspective. Let's imagine that you're a patient, you have an, let's say oncology condition. And currently you're undergoing a tremendous struggle to combat your disease. And in that struggle, you write your medical history of fighting with the disease, of different, sometimes painful procedures, of some drugs that worked, of some drugs that perhaps didn't work and had adverse effects on you. And that story and your struggle and your sacrifice has value. And there is value in that struggle for other similar patients as well. And what we are saying is that it should be your right to share that valuable story for the story not to be wasted, for other patients actually to be able to benefit from the insights that you have done, sometimes heroically fighting with a deadly disease. So from the patient perspective, we want to give people a tool of taking action against the disease, of making their stories not to be forgotten by other peoples, by the future generations. So that's from the patient perspective, giving a way of taking action against the disease and, of course, responding to an altruistic call, which is not negligible because we have hundreds of people who also participate in the blood donation, bone marrow donation, organ donation, whole body donation systems. So that's from the patient perspective. Then from the hospital perspective, we have healthcare entities that are, in theory, sitting on a trove of gold but in practice, it's only a source of legal and reputational and compliant risks. For instance, in the EU, 47% of hospital directors say that healthcare data repositories are actually a burden to the health facility rather than a source of value. 
our proposal for the hospitals is that we are diminishing the risks of monetization of data repositories, both the legal ones and technological and reputational. And we are giving them a way of monetizing that value, ultimately also for the benefit of the patients. So that's the second proposal and second element of the vision to employ this valuable databases to work also for the benefit of data providers, hospitals, diagnostic imaging centers, and so on. The third one is from the data recipient perspective. So currently, we do not have something that we describe a democratic access to medical data. So if you happen to be associated with a research institution that has good access to medical data, lucky you. If you happen to be a researcher affiliated with a corporation with financial muscle to gain access to healthcare data that you need, fantastic. But if you are a young researcher or an AI startup needing robust data sets for your products and for your research, then you have to go through months and incur significant cost to be able to access data that you need for your research. So ultimately, the vision is to ensure democratic and free access to medical data for entities that have an R&D objective in mind. Regardless if it's a big corporation or a researcher affiliated with a well-known university or an individual young scientist who just needs medical data sets for the research. That makes a lot of sense because there's a lot of this information, like I said, these journeys that aren't being leveraged for future patient journeys, which they essentially, other than the privacy issues and maybe the standardization of the structure of that data, other than those things, why aren't we using that information, right? We're supposed to learn from our history, right? Let's not repeat history. Learn from the past. If we're able to capture this information in a structured way and, and apply it to the future through our research, there could be a lot of insights that we can gain from that, that we right now are basically just closing our eyes from. So appreciate what you're trying to build through that. Actually, I think that we are going on a compromise here. And the compromise is between the privacy and data access. And in different corners of the world, is solved differently. So for instance, in the European Union, we value privacy, but we don't have good access to healthcare data. In China, It's the other end of the spectrum. So there is different privacy values that the society has. But in the same time, there is very good access to medical data. In the US, it's a bit of both. (laughs) So it's a more pro-corporate approach where there is access to anonymous or de-identified medical data sets. But also sometimes patients' privacy is put on compromise. And where we actually come and we say that we do not need to go on compromise. We can have both the privacy protection and the patient's right to decide and good access to healthcare data based on patient consents. Ethically or philosophically speaking, what do you think about the policies that, for example, China or other countries like China have? So the data is basically almost owned by the government in a way. So the citizens don't really have much of a choice. However, theoretically, they're getting all this good research from it. What is your opinion? What is your philosophical stance? I think based on what you're building, I feel like you do believe in the privacy of an individual, the dignity of the individual. But do you have any sort of additional context you want to share around that? Yeah, I can see the value in both approaches. Because if we have good access to medical data, then we can develop all these amazing tools for us to be capable of diagnosing patients better, of a more targeted treatment, of better policy making decisions, of optimization of patient pathways that ultimately translates into people living longer and happier lives. So definitely that's a value generated there, but there is also sacrifice of people not being decedents in the way their healthcare data is used. On the other end of the spectrum, what is happening in Europe right now, we value privacy. So, you know, you have to give your consent for every single data processing activity. But in the same time, we have something that we describe as the data poverty trap. So we do not benefit from all these amazing things that could have been there had we had good access to medical data. Ultimately, I believe that this depends heavily on the value system that you have as a society. It's hard to judge which one is better, which one is worse, because it refers directly to what people collectively believe that is good for them or bad. In the same time, I think that we do not have to go on compromise. And we are offering a third way that is both privacy-preserving and guarantees a good access to medical data. So if we do not have to violate either the right for a better treatment, either the right for privacy, then I do not see any reason why we shouldn't pursue the third better way. Interesting. 
That makes sense. And one thing that we can both agree on is that we'll be generating more and more data as the years come along. So that's something that we can't get our butt away from. How we manage that, how we protect it, that'll be a discussion that we'll have for many years to come. Why is a decentralized data management and consent mechanism important? You mentioned that the data isn't decentralized particularly, but do you want to explain it a little bit in more detail? Absolutely. So let's start with what's the whole genesis of the problem. So in many places, we have privacy protection regulations. And because of privacy protection regulations, we cannot access patients' data, even if it's anonymized, without patient consent. So if I'm a researcher and I need a simple medical data set for, let's say, ECG algorithm development, I need to source your consent as a patient to be able to access this kind of anonymous data. So first of all, we need consents from patients. But how do we convince people to give their consents for research. And it turns out that it's incredibly hard. Because if you put yourself in the boots of the patient, there is a pharmaceutical company or a hospital coming to you and asking you for an informed consent to share your very sensitive healthcare data with a company that you may not know for a research objective that you may not understand. And people are generally afraid of the word data. They are afraid of huge commercial enterprises in biotech sector, they are afraid that their data will be mishandled, that somebody will be calling them, trying to sell different products, so on. So it all results in very low conversion rates for collection consents of corporations from patients. Currently, it's only about 14% of conversion rate. And it also results in quite high cost of consent acquisition, currently on average $40 per one consent. If you ask people with, let's say, an oncology condition for their consents for accessing their data, which means that it's incredibly hard and costly and takes a lot of time. And ultimately, it boils down to trust. Because people are afraid and they do not trust that their data will be properly handled, that they will be informed, that the organization to which they are giving their consent is not a malicious one. Here enters decentralization and the blockchain technology, which ultimately solves the problems of trust. Previously in the financial world, but It's also a beautiful example how we can solve the same problems with data access management. So what we do is we use blockchain as the access layer to medical data. So we store consents as transactions on the public blockchain, and people are able to transparently see whether their consent is active, whether it has been revoked. They can revoke the consent at any time. And right now we are also working on the transparency mechanism where patients will be able of tracking how their data is used the way they are capable of tracking DPD or FedEx parcels. Ultimately, we are solving the issue of trust by putting patients in control, by giving them a way of auditing how their data is used. And we do not do it ourselves because another aspect of decentralization that we have is an institutional decentralization. So we do not think about what we are building as a project driven by a single entity, but rather as a coalition of different organizations working for the good of patients, working together to ensure that trust, that patients are not afraid of sharing their sensitive healthcare data with us. And right now, we have more than 35 different organizations on board, including patient associations, universities, independent researchers, medical entities, and so on. And they also have a say in the system. They can also track how the data is used. They can control us as data controllers of the people if we are not doing something malicious. And that's something that also people understand. And that's what we call an institutional layer of trust. On one hand, people struggle while giving their consents to a for-profit corporation. But on the other hand, they can give their consents and their data to a coalition of well-respected and reputable institutions that they know in a scheme that's similar to something they understand. So like blood donation, like bone marrow donation. And they know that they are in control and they can revoke access at any point of time. And using this framework, we actually went from 14% of conversion rate up to 95% of conversion rate. So almost every patient is willing 
to become a data donor because we've made it incredibly easy and also similar to something that people generally know and accept. And second, we managed to bring down the cost of consent acquisition from about $40 to about 0.4 dollars per one consent, which is 100 times less, which actually means that this can be a viable data access framework because it's scalable, people want to subscribe to it, and the cost is not overwhelming. You mentioned uh, an example of using an oncology patient, a patient who has yes. had cancer, they had some treatments, maybe surgeries. That's a lot of data. Most of that data gets entered through an electronic medical record system. Is the expectation that Data Lake will integrate with these medical record systems and share that data? Or will the patient have to input the information directly into the Data Lake application? What's the user experience like for patients? Incredibly simple. So we only expect from patients to give their consents and the power of attorney while we do all the heavy lifting. So right now, it takes 30 seconds, doesn't hurt, no needles, no blood, really simple. Patients can either give their consents at the hospital by signing a piece of paper, which also is a channel of us reaching people who are digitally excluded, people who are elderly, people who cannot use a computer. And the other channel is people can give their consents electronically in our system after identity verification. So two ways, both of them really simple, 30 seconds, and they do not have to do anything else. Legally, once we have the consent and the power of attorney, we can gain access to all the past and the future data of patients from multiple sources, make it available multiple times. By using the power of attorney, we have the same legal mechanism of demanding access to medical data from healthcare providers repositories. For example, if I as a patient authorize my mom to go to the hospital and fetch medical records on my behalf. What the law says currently in the European Union, a hospital or any other data custodian of the patient has a legal obligation of releasing the data to the power of attorney holder. And after the Cures Act from October 2022 in the US, the situation is actually quite similar. So we are authorized by the patient to demand access to data from healthcare providers' repositories. And of course, that entails integration with their IT systems and building the whole data pipeline. Interesting. Are most of your users, customers now in Europe or is it mixed? In Europe, currently, because first of all, we live here. And second of all, the need is the most burning right here. Because there is a difference between European and US legislation framework. In the US, currently, you do not have to have patient explicit and informed consent to trade their de-identified healthcare records. And there are companies that are doing that successfully, for instance, through VETA. In Europe, currently, nobody is doing it because it's such a hard thing to gather consent from patients. Interesting. Are there particular countries that you have majority of users? Yes. So right now, majority of our users is from Poland because currently our most significant consent acquisition channel is actually through hospitals. So patients come to the hospital, to the registration desk, the way they used to come for years. They sign an additional piece of paper at the registration desk, which is an informed consent for joining the medical data donation like they did for years. We designed the whole process so that it also fits within existing processes in the hospital setup because hospitals are collecting probably thousands of consents from patients every day. And this is pretty standard. I used to collect consents myself as a doctor before almost every diagnostic or therapeutic procedure. That's excellent. Do you have any numbers in terms of how many users have signed up so far? Yes, currently we have about 4,000 medical data donors. And we are collecting between 150 and 250 consents a day. It's impressive, especially for something that's still so new. And the idea of sharing your data this way is not very common yet. And again, I think that'll change as more data is generated and as we become like these data generators as a species. <laughs> yes. And I think that this is also a question of when we are going to achieve a, some sort of a critical mass. Because if you look at other donation systems in healthcare, they also took months or years to be developed. But at the end of the day, they became a default system of gaining access to a valuable resource that we need in healthcare. So there is only one blood donation system in the world. There's only one bone marrow donation system in the world. We are not expecting that we are going to be an overnight success. But man, it just makes so much sense for all the stakeholders involved that we think we are going to cross that critical mass pretty soon. So I do understand that 
data lake has a lake token that was launched do you want to discuss the launch of the token what's the tokenomics behind it sure so first of all maybe let's start with the use case why do we need a token at all I'm going to be controversial here, and I'm going to state that like most of the crypto or blockchain startups, it's not that the token is indispensable for us to be building what we are building. However, there is a number of reasons why we think it actually makes sense, and it's an excellent tool to propagate and scale our idea internationally and quickly. First of all, currently, what the law says is that you cannot pay people directly for their consents, nor you can pay for their medical data. The same way you cannot trade organs or you cannot trade blood, even between two mutually consenting adults. However, if we are using your data for what at the end of the day is a commercial research, we actually believe that you should be fairly rewarded for being an important contributor to this whole data mining or data sharing economy. And that's the main utility of the token. So it's to reward patients legally across the borders in one uniformic system where regardless of where you join, how old you are, whether you have a medical condition or not, you're entitled to a proportional gain of the lake tokens which are bought back from the market as a percentage of the revenue we generate from every single data transfer. So it's not direct payment for your data because we are not paying for your data. We are not paying for your consents. You're getting the tokens even if you're young and healthy and you don't have any kind of medical condition at all. But in the same time, we are going to share a percentage of the value that we capture from the data that we make available to data buyers. And then we are going to share it in tokens back to the users. You may ask, do we really need a token if the majority of patients are not digitally literate and only 1% to 3% of the world population is actually web-free native and can use web-free tools? And this is obviously a valid claim. That's why we are also building tools for people to be able to use the tokens as points in our system and exchange these points for health-related rewards and benefits. We have just recently launched our benefit panel about two weeks ago. And as our data donor, currently you can access discounts for diagnostic consultations, for eyeglasses, for nutritional drinks, for transportation, and so on and so on. So you actually have some kind of material gain from joining into the system, even if you cannot withdraw the token, swap it on a DEX, and so on. So we cater for different needs of different people. Some people are not interested in any kind of material gain at all. They just want to take action against the disease. They want to help other people. That's fine. The other subset of people wants to have something like a discount on transportation or medical consultation, but they do not want or can deal with cryptocurrencies. And the third subset of people is vitally interested in being the co-owners of the new economy that we are creating. And they can be active data donors, withdraw the tokens, be rewarded for it, and so on and so on. Ultimately, this is also a directional ethical decision that we are building a system that rewards people for being contributors into the system. And that's also helpful while discussing with other stakeholders in healthcare, because we are saying that we are not using the patients. We are actually making patients not only informed decision makers in the process, but also the benefactors of the value that we are generating in the system. So broadly speaking, that's the first use case, to be able to reward people legally and across the borders as a part of the data donation movement that we are creating. The second part of it is democratization of our ecosystem. So right now, we are able to, first of all, fundraise our project, which was not dependent on government's on corporation grants, nor have we taken a major funding from VCs. Currently, we have about 150 investors, mostly individual, mostly people connected with the healthcare industry, who helped us to build what we have built so far. Is the investments through the tokens? Yes, investment okay. was through the tokens, that's correct. And that was established in Poland, right? Yes, that's okay. correct. That's correct. So it was also a democratic way of funding the whole project. And first of all, also a tool for us to rally support behind our idea. But because we issue the token, we can also incentivize different actions in the system. So for instance, recently we announced the bounty program saying that whoever helps us with acquisition of a data provider or a data buyer or a benefit provider is going to be rewarded in our tokens. 
This couldn't have been possible hadn't we issued a token and we've already received dozens of collaboration proposals, which is also helpful. So ultimately, I believe that introduction of a token makes sense if you are creating something that can be described as a social movement and you need advocates of that movement talking loudly about what you're building, having also economic incentive to do so. And the second one is to be able to reward people without all the complexities with monetary payments. Interesting. And I see the value in doing that and using a token in some of these cases, especially when the purpose of the token is clearly defined. But also, you've seen lots of startups in this space clearly define their token. But at the end of the day, maybe the token is not always used in that way. And a lot of it is speculation. It's hard as a co-founder too to be in that position because there's a lot of responsibility on you and your team to not make the token the primary focus. How do you deal with that when your team is like, oh, the token just fell in value? Is there sort of like a strategy you have to maintain the focus on the mission and being able to build? It's a really interesting conversation. And actually, we've had it as a company recently also. Generally, my view is that there is a lot of discussions and a lot of self-proclaimed experts in tokenomics and the token design and everything related with the way you manage your ecosystem. And generally, I think that what the space lacks is doers and people who actually deliver on the business premise rather than philosophers who spend in my opinion, excessive amount of time on designing something that at the end of the day will be validated by the market. Right now, for the first quarter of the year, we are laser focused on our business value and on looking for clients. Actually, right now, more than half of the company, including our whole marketing department, is selling and is looking for leads and clients and pharmaceutical companies and AI companies who would like to purchase data sets from the data lake. And I believe that the token growth and the token economy validation is secondary to the business value that you can deliver. If we deliver the business value, then the exact numbers of percentages that we buy back or the token release schedule or the pools in your tokenomics are not going to be that relevant, to be honest. So first of all, we are focusing on doing business right now. And second of all, we also think that normal or well-established startup principles also should apply to Web3. So it's an iteration process, and we are introducing Web3 capabilities in our ecosystem lightly. So we are not starting with designing the system how we envision it would work in 5 to 10 years, but we are asking ourselves what's the minimum functionality that we have to have right now that addresses our need. For instance, that was the reason behind the launch of the token, because we have already were signing first commercial agreements for the sales of data, and we needed the token to be able to reward our data donors. We have in the pipeline designing of, for instance, governance mechanisms of what we call participation staking or preference staking mechanism for data buyers, but we sort of have frozen them for the future because we do not have such problem right now. Internally, we actually talk a lot about this doer versus philosopher type of duality. And I know that we all have tendency to be drifting towards the latter because it's intellectually rewarding. I think it also takes intellectual honesty to admit that first you have to do business and then you can design all these fantastic and incredibly exciting tokenomics aspects that are not necessarily so important at the first stage. And I understand that Data Lake is using Polygon as its consent management blockchain protocol tool. That's correct. Do you want to dive into why you selected Polygon, maybe the process you went through while selecting the protocol and just like high level and then what is being stored? I used to mention the transactions of the consents, but not the actual data itself. So yes. maybe also just where is the data? Absolutely. So first, really briefly about Polygon, it was kind of a default choice. So EVM compatible, layer two, low gas fees, good adoption, tested in battle, scalable. It was kind of a no-brainer. So we just went for the biggest option out there that would guarantee uptime and scalability. And we think that just makes sense. What do we store on Polygon versus outside of the blockchain? Let's start with the legal limitation first. What you have to ensure while storing of healthcare data is, first of all, proof of location. In many jurisdictions, you have to be able to show which soil the servers are located where the data is stored. In the European Union, 
as a rule, it has to be within the borders of the EU, with some countries like Germany having even more strict regulations. So for instance, German data has to be stored in Germany, which is obviously a challenge with the blockchain because you can never show where is the physical location of the data storage. That might be coming up with some blockchain protocols. For instance, I know that Filecoin is working on such solution, but it's not regulatory approved yet. So that's the first need that makes it really hard to store health data on the blockchain, even if it's anonymized. Then the second thing that we took into consideration is that there is also the need to ensure the right to be forgotten. So we cannot store any kind of pseudonymized or personal information on the blockchain because we always have to be able to delete it upon the request of the data subject. These two limitations combined prompted us to use blockchain only as a ledger of access and as a ledger of operations on the data. But currently we are using cloud, which is healthcare compatible and compliant for storage of the medical data sets. Which cloud? GCP. GCP. Okay. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. I think it's interesting because... Yeah, you're right. It's quite restrictive on how data can be stored, yeah. especially in Europe. Yeah, very interesting. I think that'll evolve over time, but we'll see how that works. Yes. So we talked a little bit about the ecosystem that you're building with Lake, but also the community that is involved. So how are you maintaining governance of the community and how is the engagement going? What can you share about the community? Currently, we are talking about two communities that we have. The first one is the community on Telegram and our community of our previous investors and supporters of the project. We are maintaining the engagement of the community in pretty standard manners, so keeping them updated, organizing AMAs, sending rigorously every month for our progress update. The second community, however, that we have is the community of our patients, whom we call data heroes. Right now, we are also building this whole benefit panel and onboarding them into our online platform to engage with them more. Because having a tool of engaging with people who are also interested in their health and in sharing of their data has also business value for us. So currently, because we have collected the consents on paper, we are still onboarding the people into the online platform and building the tools for engagement of all the data heroes. We haven't done much, to be honest, in that regard so far, because once again, we've been focused on validating our business hypothesis first and reaching to the first revenue. But with time, we actually see us doing a lot more with the community of patients that we have. A couple of ideas, for instance, is that if we have access to patients' medical records and to their data, we are actually also able to link people with a similar diagnosis in an anonymous way so that they can also exchange information and experience about their experience with different healthcare setups on our platform. So we are also thinking about the platform that we are developing as a patient engagement tool, but quite frankly, we are not that yet advanced with the development of that patient-facing interface. Interesting. Yeah, there are tools like that now where you can join like either a Facebook group very simply or there's other platforms too where patients can share information about their diagnosis, symptoms, experience. And I find that is a very valuable thing because you get to feel that you're not alone. That's very important. And second of all, there are things that you can learn that you could use on a daily basis that you wouldn't have known otherwise. Like a doctor might not be able to provide those tips. Exactly. Plus, we would also be able to actually verify whether you have this kind of condition that you claim that you have. True. So we would be able to link in patients with the same kind of condition saying that, look, everybody here in this group is actually verified to be a patient, which is hard to ensure on, our, on other platforms. That's a good point. You have to trust those accounts, basically. Exactly. This has been an awesome conversation. I have a few more personal questions, I think, and then we can wrap up with any takeaways. But first, in terms of the rest of this year, 2023, what is your outlook? What are you planning? It's pretty ambitious. So at the beginning of our talk, I actually mentioned that there is this new wave that we are riding. And like the culmination of it, we actually see it coming in September because there's a new regulation in the EU, which is coming up called the Data Governance Act. And what it says, which is really interesting, is that it describes data altruism mechanisms for health data sharing. It's nothing different than a data donation. So there is this whole legislation put forward by the European Commission saying that we want a donation system in framework to be built upon data altruism principles. And we want it now. 
What we are currently focusing on is on validating that this can actually work from patients, which we've already done, good conversion, scalable way of collecting consents, with hospitals. Currently, we have a couple of really significant agreements in the pipeline that would potentially give us access to over a dozen of millions of patient records from a variety of hospitals, some of them actually already closed. Currently, we have about access to more than 2 million patient records. And finally, we are focusing a lot on data buyer and data recipient part and actively prospecting for opportunities with life sciences and AI companies. Some of the agreements we actually closed last week with big international data brokers and with AI companies looking to purchase data for AI algorithm training. The goal for this quarter is validation of the model across the board, saying that we can get patients on board, we can get providers on board, we can diminish all the risks in the process, plus we can supply a product that somebody is willing to pay for. And we are on track to achieve it. Once we do it, we would actually be looking to raising more capital, probably in Q2, Q3, and using that capital to scale this model for sure in the whole of EU. Because there is going to be the need for a technology and tool provider for all the data altruism organizations that we foresee will be mushrooming in the EU after the enactment of the Data Governance Act. And conveniently, we have designed an open ecosystem where everybody would be able to join, use our token, use our consent system, use our data donation framework, and replicate it in whatever jurisdictions they function. So this is another thing that I think is great in Web3, that you can think in this terms of ecosystems where you have this value capture mechanism in the token where, you know, if the other organization joins and is using your tools, including the token, then also value accrues for the whole of the ecosystem, which I think is fascinating. In short, what we are going to be focusing on is validating our business hypothesis end-to-end and then scaling our data donation framework before that the GA comes into force. Do you have any projects, decentralized ledger technology projects that you think are doing really important work that you just want to highlight? Obviously, Molecule and VitaDAO, I'm a huge fan. And I think that they are doing an incredibly important work, also spearheading the whole space as such. Also, being a physician, I actually see tremendous value in longevity research on a number of fronts. And my personal opinion is that this is something that is really going to take humanity forward. I'm not a huge fan of space exploration. On the other hand, I think that we should fix our own issues first here on Earth before we go outwards. But I think that longevity research is definitely a major point where the value of community and proper framework of shelling of intellectual property is something that we genuinely need. So big shout out to them. Awesome. Is there a book that you found to be very influential to you? Yes. And that actually also relates to the Data Lake story. It's a book written by an American professor, Stanford professor of both medicine and business. His name is Dr. Robert Pearl. He was the CEO of of Kaiser Permanente Group. And he wrote two really important books. The first one was called Mistreated, Why We Think We Are Getting Good Healthcare and Why We Are Usually Wrong. And the second was called Uncaring, Why Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients. And I think that both are spot on. And actually, in the first book, Mistreated, he advocates the value of sharing of medical records. And he points out to one very important fact that the way our brain works is that when we do not see a direct correlation between cost and effect, we tend to neglect such causatic relationships. An example. If you are a surgeon and you cut an artery of a patient and the patient dies, you go to court. You are sued for medical malpractice. If you are a family physician and you fail to vaccinate your patient against a preventable disease and the patient contracts a disease 10 years later and dies, nobody knows and nothing happens. In both cases, there is a direct correlation between your action and the final result. So the demise of a patient. But in the second example, it's hard to see it. It's not immediate. And I think that this is also very insightful if you think about medical data. 
Because if you donate blood and you give blood to people who are bleeding, then there is this direct relation of your blood saving other people. With data, it's a bit different because this is a question of statistics, a question of preventable deaths, a question of optimization of treatment pathways and so on, which are so incredibly important. And the example that I always like to use is the way that we developed our surviving sepsis campaign, a treatment guidelines that save hundreds of thousands of lives every year. And the guidelines were actually developed upon analysis of huge data samples from California. And it has tremendous effect on people's lives all over the world. There is no direct relation between the costs and the effect, at least not the one that you can observe. So definitely recommend the book because it sheds a lot of light into this kind of indirect causation relationships in healthcare and how we should think about them. And the second one is we actually wrote it a couple of times with my co-founders because it's about the culture of medicine. And as I told you in the beginning, there are so many things in healthcare that just don't make sense. But this is the way we've done it for years, as doctors, as hospitals, as organizations. And from the outside, it's illogical. But once you're there, then it actually seems just right. And it really sharpened my senses to observation of these things that don't make sense, but are just an element of a culture. And building a new donation system, we are actually tapping into it. And that's why we call it a donation system, not a data altruism thing, not something different. But on purpose, we wanted to use a word that bears resemblance to something that people know that's already in the culture. Interesting. I'll make sure to include those books in the show notes as well for the audience. Amazing. How do you like to stay active and fit and exercise? (laughs) Great question. And I actually think this is super important when you're a startup founder. So six times a week, CrossFit classes, 6.45 a.m. in the morning, most of the times, at least I try. I cannot stress enough how much of a help it is with combating stress, with having more clarity of mind and so on. Of course, if you are still not listening to the podcast, I deeply recommend the Andrew Huberman podcasts with a number of tools for optimization of health, well-being and performance, physical exercise being one of them. I know that without exercising, running a startup, an early stage startup would have been just too much to handle. Yeah, I would agree with you. I think keeping fit, staying active is essential and we don't talk about it. I mean, people talk about it a lot, but I still think there's a large population who don't actively seek exercise or workouts. True. And the second thing that was really a game changer for me recently that people do not talk about, and I think it's hugely important, is the way you use some science-based tools for calming yourself down. We are very good in you know, being more active, being more excited. It's not a problem to stay up during the night on a party or watching a movie, but it takes a lot of intentionality and some really good tools to calm yourself down. And I think that taking a bit of time and researching different tools like, I don't know, yoga, meditation, non-sleep depressed protocols, some briefing patterns that you can use to calm yourself down has been incredibly useful for me because it also enhances performance, essentially, and makes me a better performing founder, I believe. That's amazing. Well, Jack, this has been an incredible conversation. Thank you so much for sharing about Data Lake, about what's going on with data donations in the industry. I think there's a lot of opportunity here, and I'm excited to learn more about your company and your team as they grow. Is there anything else you would like to share with the audience before we wrap up here? Yeah, just stay with us. We are really trying to keep everyone informed. I subjectively think that what we do is actually really interesting. And we also take it as a business experiment because every startup is to a sense, a business experiment. And there is a number of things that we are validating on the go. And yeah, we would love you to be a part of the journey. If you'd like to be more materially engaged, then I also invite you to read our Medium article about our bounty program. And if you can help us with business results that are important for us, you can also become a partner in the financial sense because we are giving away uh, like token rewards for people who essentially support data donation idea and help us make it a reality. Excellent. Thank you again. Hey, all you cyberpunk health warriors and nimble digital disruptors. Check out healthunchained.org and remember to subscribe to Health Unchained on Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, and iTunes. Join the Health Unchained community on our Telegram group, t.me slash healthunchained. If you enjoyed this episode, tell your friends, your bosses, your teams, your students to listen and subscribe. Thank you.